And I want to start out by a principle that I want to share with you, and then I want to tell you a little bit of a story. This principle is this. It was once said that character is who you are when nobody's looking. Character is who you are when nobody's looking. Just a few weeks ago, um, I got a letter or an email from somebody on the East Coast where one of our pastors in the Free Church, uh, the pastor of a very large church on the East Coast, was struggling with some issues personally, and he was hiding those issues, faking those issues. And I believe there was some struggles in their marriage, and his wife uh, confronted him with these issues and wanted them to be uncovered and no longer hidden. And so she decided to go talk to an elder one afternoon, and she went to the elder's house and took the two children with her. And the elder immediately picked up an associate pastor and went back to the pastor's wife's house. And by the time they got to the house, he had already hung himself. And she wrote a letter after that and said that this, let this be a warning to many of you pastors out there who live under the expectation and microscope of people's lives. And here was a man who could not cope with his inner life. His private life was falling apart, but his public life seemed to be all together. And this morning we're going to look at David, where his private life, in essence, became public at some point. But his private life was in trouble. It was hidden. He thought it was hidden. And so let's dig into this, because here's David after 20 years of incredible success as a king. He came to be the king at age 30, and at this particular time in his life, he was about 50 years old, as in the passage that we're going to look at with you this morning. And everything he did in battle and as a king up to this point garnished great popularity and success. And essentially, he was probably in one of the most dangerous places in his entire life. Why do I say that? Because principle number two I want to share with you this morning is this. One of the most dangerous places to be in life is to enjoy great success without accountability. Do you know people like that? When we're on the, 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 the wave of success, it's so easy to take life for granted, to take relationships for granted, and to feel like you're invincible. And here was a man who had had incredible success on the battlefield, And yet he had a weakness. He had an Achilles heel, if you will. He had a tragic flaw in his life, a sin issue, a weakness, if you will, and it was towards beautiful women. He had quite a harem already, and we come to this place in in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we realize that that wasn't enough for David. And here was a man after God's own heart who had demonstrated great integrity and character but had an incredible fall. And many of you know this story, but we're going to walk through it this morning and hopefully we're going to learn some more things about who we are and perhaps some of the things that you've been hiding in your own life. So let's dig right into 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at, first of all, the sin issue in David's life. It says in this, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David, unfortunately, remained in Jerusalem. He wasn't with his troops. And one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. 
Now, when the scripture says this woman was very beautiful, she must have been a knockout because David had plenty of women in his life. But this woman, for some reason, grabbed his attention. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Unbelievable. Here was a guy that we have walked through his entire life. And other than the little hiccup in a sense last week when we talked about him maybe having the right motive but the wrong method, now we find David with poorly, poor motives and obviously poor methods. And he falls into this incredible sin of adultery and lust. And as you look at this progression, you see some interesting scenarios that perhaps you can identify with your own life as you think about some of these sin issues that you've struggled with. And the first one is this. You notice that David was in the wrong place at the wrong time? Have you ever been in that in your life where you've been at the wrong place at the wrong time? You've decided to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and you've been with the wrong crowd or the wrong situation and you found yourself really compromising your life? You see, David was supposed to be out on the battlefield. This is the time, the springtime, when, when there were armies were fighting. David was a warrior. David was the head of the army. And yet, for some reason, he chose to stay home and chill out. That idleness and that time in his hands cost him big time. He was alone and nobody's watching. And oftentimes in our lives, it's when we're alone and we're idle and nobody's watching is when we have the greatest battles. And here's David struggling with this battle that he always had with this area of lust in his life. And now it came to fruition big time in his life because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, you notice here, too, that what we also see is that Satan loves to exploit our greatest weaknesses. See, David had a propensity for beautiful women, and that was a weakness in his life. And he had already had quite a harem, but yet he needed this another woman to conquer in his life. You know, when I thought about this, I thought about how Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, as Scripture tells us in Peter. And, you know, when you see a lion and the way it stalks its prey, it's very fascinating. In fact, if you, would, you can go to Africa and you kind of watch, if you observe, you notice that lions oftentimes sit under a shade of a little tree or whatever, and, and, and they kind of look like they're just innocent little putty cats, you know, kind of letting, sitting there. But in the whole time, they're stalking their prey. And they're watching for the weakest person or the weakest element or the weakest animal in that herd. And they pounce on that weakest animal because that's the weak link. And this was David's weak link. And God and Satan all oftentimes exploits our weakest link. And it's so critical for us to know what those weak links are in our lives. What are those weaknesses? What are those areas of our life that we find ourselves vulnerable to? Because we know that Satan will often attack in that area of our life. And that's what he was doing with David. He was using this woman in his life to, to really uh, to exploit David's weakness. But Thirdly, what you notice about sin is this, is that momentary pleasure trumps lasting consequences. Have you noticed that as well? You know, for that that brief moment of what ecstasy or enjoyment, if you will, can cost you big time in the future as terms of consequences. But we don't think about that in the middle of those compulsive moments in our lives. We don't go there. We don't want to think about what the after effect and how it's going to impact other people's lives. For that moment, it's just the tyranny of the urgent for us and instant gratification. And and beyond that, David probably thought, well, who's going to know? I'm the king. This is a private moment. Just this once, once 
won't really matter. Who knows what went through David's mind at that point? Because he was king, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And he had this freedom to make this choice. And I'm sure at some point, who's going to really know? But you know what's interesting? The servant knew. The servant went and got Bathsheba and took care of it. So there wasn't really a secret thing going on in his life. But fourth, when you also know that sin is really most dangerous when we know that nobody's watching. Remember what we said earlier is that it was once said that character is who you are when nobody's watching? See, it's so easy to do the right thing when you've got an audience. But, but when you don't, it's really a lot harder. I think of that pastor who tried to perform every Sunday and to be able to face the, uh, over a thousand people on a Sunday morning and pretend. It was probably easy in some sense to, to pretend at that point, but it's in his private life when nobody was watching that this man was struggling with so many deep issues. But I want you to notice number three principle is this. No matter how private your sin is, God is always watching. You're never going to get away with it. In Psalm 139, David writes this when he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I rise of the wings of the dawn. If I settle on the far side of the sea, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness is as light to you. David knew this in his head, but this weakness, this propensity for lust and sin in his life just overwhelms him, and he handled it really, really poorly. So what happens? Instead of David confessing it and getting it out in the open, he decides to cover it up. How many of us have made those kinds of decisions in our life where we've done something that we're really ashamed of or embarrassed about, and then we said, you know what? Nobody really knows about it. It was kind of a private thing, so I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to cover it up. I'm going to figure out how to hide this. Well, this is what David does in verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So the first scheme of David was to cover up this sin, was to maybe bring Uriah home from the battlefield. He'd be worn out and tired. He could reunite with his wife, maybe have a conjugal visit, and perhaps cover up the fact that she was pregnant. Well, he didn't count on Uriah being so incredibly loyal and faithful to him and to his men. So when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Well, in verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. It's funny when you try to cover up, you, you know, you're banking on some of your own schemes and it wasn't working at all for David. So then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he didn't go home. Uh-oh, the best made plans of mice and men. 
I want you to see this principle really quick, and this is number four, is that hiding our sin will lead us to commit more sins to cover it up. Have you ever noticed that? You've got to keep faking it. You've got to keep figuring out, how do I keep covering this up? And it oftentimes leads to more sin, and that's what happens to David. So in verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Isn't this interesting? Uriah's carrying his own death warrant. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and so in this letter he writes, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. In other words, set Uriah up to be killed on the battlefield. So while Joab in the city had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now, it's fascinating here to me to see not only does he have Uriah killed, in essence murdered, but he also implicates other people in his sin by using Uriah to do it. It's amazing how our sin can kind of overflow into other people's lives and we have that kind of power and success. Well, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. It says in verse 18, he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of the Jerobesha? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone uh, on him from the wall so that he died in, in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, they say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So with all that reporting back, with all the questions, Joab does a nice cover job, and he says, oh, by the way, Uriah got killed in battle. Well, this is probably great news to David. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Did Joab need encouragement? No. What a game. What a cover-up. What a scam. David was caught in this cascading effect of sin and how hiding sin can lead from one lie to another to another to another. And he was getting deeper and deeper in this relationship and how many of us have been in a situation where we've sinned and we then try to cover it up and we hide it and we, it leads to something else and another lie and then we start faking it until we make it. And just like this pastor guy who spent months covering up and hiding and faking it every Sunday morning and sooner or later it caught up to him where he took his own life. See, what's interesting here is you'd think David would already feel great guilt and a sense of, 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 of urgency to repent of what he was doing. But you notice here that principle number five I want to share with you this morning is sometimes the longer we cover it up, the more seared our conscience can become. And there was almost a searing of David's conscience at this point that he had covered this up. It didn't seem to bother him at this point, and yet we read later on that it really did. But at this point in his time, he was just like, okay, my scheme works. I've been able to cover this up. I can hide this. Nobody really know the difference, and we're home free. 
Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him after the time of mourning was over. David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the king had done, but the, king, the thing David had done displeased the Lord, to say the least. So we see David's sin. We see how he's tried to cover it up. But now there was a day of reckoning in his life. Now it was time for David to be exposed. And God used a man named Nathan the prophet. Somehow God revealed that sin to Nathan the prophet. And it was time for David to have an intervention in his life. And so we read about it in chapter 12 about the exposure of David's sin. And what I love about Nathan is is that he, he really kind of blindsided David by telling a story, an illustration. And look at the illustration it says in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said, Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Isn't it funny how when you have the log in your own eye, you see the speck in your brother's? And so here was a situation where Nathan had drawn him a picture and really captured the essence of David's sin within that illustration. And then David said to, Nathan said to David, you're the man. And it's not you the man, you're the man. Now that must have hit David like a ton of bricks. Because at that point, David probably thought he had everything under control. And it was probably about six months after this that Nathan came to him. And there was a lot of agony and stuff going on in his life we're going to read about in a minute. But the point is this, is that all of a sudden, boom, it's now public. It's exposed. The prophet knows. And I'm the guy. And now he had to accept the fact that he had really messed up. That's a tough place to be in our lives, isn't it? When we have to admit, you know what? I'm the guy. You're the guy. You're the sinful guy. You're the one that did. And I think about this sixth principle that I want to share is that, listen, sooner or later, your sin's going to get exposed. You can't hide it forever. I think about this pastor where I think, believe what happened was what his wife went to him and said, you know, honey, we've got to get this out in the open. You've got to share it with the elders. You've got to make yourself vulnerable. You've got to be transparent about some of your issues. You can't go on hiding this any longer. And he couldn't deal with this exposure in his life. And so he took his life. It's tough when you kind of get hit in the gut by God and you begin to realize, man, I messed up. And it it really is a a difficult place for anybody to be. But God used Nathan the prophet to do that. And I'm wondering, as I looked at this, I thought, you know, I wonder how many people in our lives that we know that maybe could use an intervention like that. That could somebody could, could come to them and be able to be honest enough and truthful enough and loving enough to really confront them. And perhaps you maybe know somebody in your own life that, that, that you, would, you can see that they've been dealing with issues, they've been hiding some things, and they're, they're not dealing with it. They're living in this denial. Their conscience are seared, and it's time for an intervention. Do you know anybody like that? 
And as I thought about that, I thought, when people are in denial, sometimes you just have to go there. And so a question that I had as I was looking at this, what does it take to have an effective intervention? Because you look at the model that Nathan used, and it's a powerful model of really confronting somebody with their sin. And so I thought, I saw four basic answers to that question. The first answer is this, you've got to deal with absolute truth. When you're confronting somebody, it can't be on hearsay, it can't be subjective, you have to have the facts, and you have to have those facts in hand, so that when you speak the truth, you're really speaking truth, you're really speaking facts. And it was a fact that what what Nathan had done with David. Secondly, you have to have the right timing. Sometimes the timing of our lives are off and scripture is really important about how important it is to be listening to God in that leading when it comes to really confronting somebody. We need to be extremely sensitive to that because sometimes it's the wrong place at the wrong time. But there are opportunities sometimes and windows of opportunity in people's lives where you can confront them with issues. Then thirdly, you have to have wise wording. A word fitly spoken is like apples of God, what what, uh, Solomon wrote in, in Proverbs. And it's so important to, to really be gentle but truthful and loving and honest. And that's what Nathan was trying to do. He was trying to paint David a picture. So he didn't just walk up to David and say, You sinner, what in the world were you thinking, man? Are you an idiot or what? No, he didn't go there. But he drew him a picture and allowed David to absorb and, and, and own his own sin. That was really critical to have that kind of wording. And then fourth, it takes fearless courage. We need to be able to confront in love, and it's a courageous thing for some of us to do. And we're reluctant to do that often in, in, in the church today because, because frankly, you know, we're always, we're, we're saying, oh, who am I to judge? I mean, I can't, I can't share with them because I've got issues in my own life. And yet Scripture tells us to exhort one another and to confess our sins to one another. And sometimes we need to take that risk in somebody's life. And that's what Nathan did. He stepped out on a limb. You know, really... David could have easily, with one swipe of the sword, cut Nathan's head off because David was king. So Nathan took a risk, and he followed the Lord's leading, and it really convicted David's heart. So as you think about this, we not only have a sin, we have the cover-up, but we also have the exposure, but we also have to think about the consequences. Because even though David admits that he is right, there were consequences that David had to absorb in his life. And one of them was emotional and physical pain resulting from the guilt. Because during that six-month period between that sin and Nathan's confrontation, there was a lot going on that David was agonizing with. In Psalm chapter 32, we read about it. And for some of you, you've been hiding some issues in your life that has probably taken its toll on you emotionally and perhaps even physically for a long period of time. And it's cost you in certain emotional ways in relationships with one another. Here's what David says in Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So up to a point, David was struggling emotionally and even physically with his weight of his sin. And it was eating him up, sleepless nights and thinking through all the guilt and the cover-up. Can you imagine what he had to deal with? He had to deal with lust and adultery and murder and lying. 
David had to deal with all of that. It wasn't an easy thing for him to handle emotionally and physically, nor is it easy for us to handle when we have the weight of sin all over us. I remember for many years I had the sin of unforgiveness in my life for 13 years of ministry. And God just kind of overwhelmed me one day and I realized that I was bubbling up inside with all of this frustration and anger and hurt and woundedness in my own life. And it was, it was taking its toll on me emotionally and physically until I burst and got forgiveness for the unforgiveness that I held in my life against so many sheep. But secondly, there was trauma and tragedy in David's life. Look at what Nathan says, verse 9 of chapter 12. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. That is what the Lord says. And out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. You think you did something in your private life that nobody knew about? You're going to suffer some consequences publicly because your own family is going to betray you. There's going to be problems in your family life. There's going to be lust and rape and revenge in your own family, David, because of the result of your sin. And then David says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally comes to grips with the Lord. There's a third element of consequence that you don't see here very clearly, but as you look to the rest of David's life, you'll really see that he wasn't the same kind of leader that he was before this sin. He did not have the confidence to even confront his own son with his own rebellion and rape. David seemed to to kind of wimp out a little bit more as time went on, which tells me this, that Here's principle number six. The sooner we acknowledge and repent of our sin and receive his forgiveness, the sooner we can stop being held by the chains of the past so that we can move to a brighter tomorrow. That's a mouthful. But the point I want to make is that he lost a lot of his confidence. He lost a lot of who he was because it always came back to haunt him, the sin of his past. And yes, was David forgiven? Absolutely. We read about it in Psalm 51. He was very repentant. He was so worried about his relationship to God that he even thought the Holy Spirit was going to leave him. I mean, he came to grips with it, and he was broken before God, and he did get freedom. But we also know that he lost a son over it because that baby that was born to him in Bathsheba died, as you well know. There were consequences to his sin. Let us not forget that there are consequences. There are scars. Yes, we can find freedom and forgiveness, but there's consequences, and sometimes we don't want to talk about that. We just want to think that God's grace is so sufficient that we're never going to be uh, haunted by it or concerned about it ever again. You say, well, doesn't God forget our sin? Yeah, in a sense, but he, he doesn't hold it to us, our account. But sometimes we need to remember our sins so that we avoid that particular issue down the line. And so those consequences can be devastating in our lives. And they were devastating in David's life as well. Well, this morning, I don't want this sermon to be a downer. I want this message to be a message of freedom to you all this morning. We've been singing about God's grace all morning. And God's grace is sufficient because we still know that David was a man after God's own heart. God loved David and Jesus was a part of the bloodline of his inheritance. 
So we know David was a man who was loved by God and God's grace was sufficient in David's life and he can be sufficient in your life this morning as well. So let me close by asking you some things again like I normally do. Can you answer this question? Who are you when nobody's looking? Who are you when you're in front of the computer? Who are you when you're behind the driving or behind the wheel of your car and nobody's watching? Who are you when you're in your thought life? Who are you in those private idle moments when you're all alone? Who are you? Let us all remember that we're never alone, right? We're never alone because God is always there for us. I guess the question I have to you this morning, are you willing to acknowledge your sin? There's people I'm sure that are sitting here this morning that have some hidden issues, some hidden sin. Things that have been haunting you and troubling you, perhaps an addiction or something that's going on that maybe most people don't even know about. They haven't got a clue. But you and God know. You and God know. And just because you think nobody's watching, God watches. And I really would love to see this morning be an opportunity for some of you folks to allow that sin to be exposed in your life and to come clean. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just know that God wants to free you up and unburden you with that stuff that's been hiding in your life for a long time. You say, well, I might be embarrassed or I might, you know, people might judge me or whatever. You know what? That's just Satan talking to you because when you expose sin in the light, God is so gracious and people are so forgiving and people are so patient. So if that's you this morning and God's been speaking to you about an issue in your own life, we're going to give you the opportunity to just come here before the Lord and kneel before God in in a sort of a private public way saying, God, this is an area of my life that I'm tired of hiding. I don't want to fake it anymore. This is an issue, and I want to bring it to you, and I want to get that freedom that you offer by your grace. But there's also some of you that are sitting here this morning that maybe are thinking about that other person who you've been praying for, who you've been loving on for a long time, and you know that they're dealing with a sin issue in their life. It might be anger or unforgiveness or a relational problem or, or an addiction, whatever it is, and you've been praying for them for a long time, and they just don't seem to get it. It's sort of their conscience is seared, and they've been kind of living in this denial, and maybe God's leading you to do that intervention, to, to be that courageous person who loves them enough to say, look, this is you. You've got an issue here. You've got a problem here. And perhaps that's what God is saying to some of you this morning, that there's that person in your life that you feel like, you know what, God, I, I, I want to have the right timing. I want to say the right thing. And I don't want to be holier now, but I know that this person really needs an intervention. They need to be called on the carpet for this. And I want to do it in love, God, but I want your timing. I want your wisdom. I want your words. I want the truth. And if that's you this morning, then maybe that's what you need to sit Come before the Lord here and bring that to him at his feet. And just say, God, you know, I, I want to be available. I want to be a Nathan if I need to be. If that's the desire of your heart this morning, would you just have the, the boldness and the courage to just come and kneel before the Lord and bring it to him this morning? Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
for the opportunity to share about David's life. God, I'm so glad that you don't sugarcoat things in your word about the saints that we so adore. I'm thankful for a guy like David. It almost encourages me to know that even though this man after God's own heart could do something so incredibly evil. And yet, God, we know that your grace is sufficient. We know there's there's consequences to our sin. But God, more than anything, we need to know your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And so my desire, Lord, is for some folks to walk out of here free. Free from maybe some things that they've been harboring and hiding and faking for a long time. And this morning, they want to get right with you. And perhaps reveal that to somebody else to kind of bring it into the light and to find new accountability and love and acceptance from others. God, don't, don't let folks leave here this morning carrying that burden any longer. And for that, those folks who are maybe saying, you know what, maybe God, you've been calling me and prompting me for a long time to talk to my husband or to my wife or to that one rebellious child or that, that, that individual that you know is really battling with something and they just have kind of had their conscience seared. God, if that's the story, then God, I pray that they would find direction this morning from you. So in these next few moments, as Jamie sings this song, if you feel led by the Lord, just come up here and join me here at the front. And let's pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.